You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 312. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You're listening to another Local Maximum. I had a great time going on Michael Callahan's show, Where We Go Next, to talk about AI and You are going to be in for a real special follow-up today because I had the opportunity to talk to Michael and interview him for this show, The Local Maximum. And wow, I have to say, prepare yourself to be taken into a discussion about identity and about ways of thinking that is not just deep, but contains a strong emotional element that I think will resonate with just about all of you. So my next guest is a generator of video game content by trade, and conducts amazing interviews about the stories people tell about society and how to make sense of the world. His podcast is called Where We Go Next. Michael Callahan, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Max, thanks so much for having me on. All right. I'm excited to talk about your podcast today, Where We Go Next, because I've been looking through your episodes and... There's a lot of really interesting themes, but before we get started talking about it, maybe you could give us a little background. Like, why did you start this podcast? What do you do besides the podcast that kind of made you want to do this? And what do you look for in your guests? So in my day-to-day life, I work in advertising, but that's not really connected to why I started the podcast. The reason I started the podcast a few years ago is I felt that we were having really important conversations nationally in really simplistic ways. If you go back and look at any of my first 15 episodes, many of them are around the issue of identity or how we talk about and cover things like the news, because I felt like we were doing both of those things and still are in many ways really wrong. So whether it was with John Wood Jr. of Brave Angels and how to bridge political divides or talking about how to expand our ideas ethnically and racially about what it means to be an American with Zed Jelani or how to move beyond our racialized identities with Anaya, Fuller, and Amon. Those were the things that really animated me the most back then. And then over time, I expanded the topic we were covering in the podcast to pretty much anything. So now I'll talk with Ashley Vance, the writer of the Elon Musk biography, and most recently, When the Heavens Went on Sale, about private rocket companies that are going to space for cheaper prices and reusable rockets. Or I'll speak with Steve Fambro, who's creating a super efficient electric vehicle. So these days, I think I'm most attracted to guests who have curiosity and empathy and like to think outside the box on a whole host of issues. So it's an interesting observation because I went through that too, where I started the podcast for one reason and branched out. But I think we went almost in opposite directions. I mean, maybe that's an oversimplification. I don't know. I've been doing the podcast so long. <laughs> I feel like there's been so many iterations, but I started like on the tech side and then I moved into... Actually, early on, I was like, well, the social stuff I'm not really that good at. I should probably just stay in my lane. But then after a while, I realized, okay, I have to talk about the social stuff. It's important. But it seems like you have veered into technology as well because they kind of both go hand in hand. Yes. And technology has always been a fascination of mine. So my first podcast ever, which has been since scrubbed from the internet, was a podcast called Future Speak. The tagline being the future is refreshing because I loved and still do waking up every morning and reading about the latest tech news, whether that's forthcoming AGI or anything related to Tesla or SpaceX. I've always had a huge fascination with that stuff. And I think the reason I didn't continue with that podcast was one, it wasn't interview based. So every time I would have to put together a new episode, I'd have to write out an entire script covering the news of the week. And it was just incredibly time consuming. 
But also I felt at that time, it wasn't what was on my mind day to day. At that time, circa 2018, 2019, 2020, the thing that was really animating me in a way that had me scared for society was I felt like we were having these really important conversations around, at that time, really specifically race and identity in ways that were really reductive. And even though they purported to be conversations that we needed to have in order to move forward, I actually felt that a lot of the conversations we were having around these issues were actually pulling us backwards or pushing us further apart. So it sounds like you still come from that kind of fascination with technology, but just out of curiosity, you said it was scrubbed from the internet. It sounds like this is something that would be like interesting to <laughs> to have like an archive or whatever, or, or is it just something you're, you're just not interested in or or is it something you might post one day? I could repost it. I recently just took it down because I was tired of paying the hosting fees for a podcast that was getting at that point one or two downloads per episode per month because I had stopped recording in 2018. But I still have all the files and I might go back and listen to them one day. Yeah, let me tell you, those those monthly charges add up. You do them and you're like, oh, 10 bucks a month here, 10 bucks a month there. It's not, And then before you know it, you go through and you have like tons of them and it's like, forget about them. Exactly. <laughs> but okay, I let's talk about the, the theme of, of your podcast right now. So you've been, when did you start Where We Go Next? The first episode came out, that was with John Wood Jr. That came out on September 29th of 2020. Okay, so that that already was a time of like great change and dislocation for all of us during not just COVID, but everything else that happened that year. Were any of the uh, events that year catalysts for you uh, deciding to, to start that? The issue of identity was one that I'd been thinking about for many years. I don't talk about this particular issue that much because I'm married now. But at the time, starting in 2013, I was in a relationship with someone who introduced me to critical race theory. And in 2013, if you knew what critical race theory was back then, you were kind of ahead of the curve. You're a little hipster. Yeah, exactly. I knew about it before it was cool, but now it's everywhere. But back then, if I would go to someone and be like, do you know what critical race theory is? They wouldn't have any idea what I was talking about, let alone Audrey Lord. So I'd be in these circles with people where they would be saying oftentimes a lot of insightful stuff about race and issues, especially around the legal system that I wasn't previously aware of. And I ate that stuff up, but they were also saying stuff that I felt was incredibly simplistic and reductive and didn't really speak to my experiences as, let's just say it, as a white person or speak to my experiences with people I knew very closely, people of color, friends of mine who didn't think the ways that the people in these circles that I was traveling at the time said that they thought or when they would talk about people of color this or white people that like it didn't comport all the time with my own experience. And if I would try and push back and be like, hey, if we're talking about things around injustice or police brutality, et cetera, like I'm on board. But when you're talking about the way that I think or like the way that my family or friends think or act or live, what you're saying, it's not lining up with my lived experience. But that oftentimes mattered less to them than a narrative that was cohesive, if often reductive and simplistic. And the more and more time that I spent in these circles, the worse and worse I felt about myself. And to the point where by 2014, uh, that sounds pretty quick, actually. 2013 to 2014. It was a very toxic ideology in a lot of ways. And again, that's not to take away from the value in an academic setting or the value of researching it with a kind of emotional distance. But when you're constantly surrounded by it in that way and people are talking about you, like just as one example, Max, I'm half Armenian, half Irish. Both my ancestors came over here a long time ago. My Armenian ancestors came here around 1920. The Irish ones came over around 1870. 
And people would talk in those circles about my Armenian identity as if it was the most important and valuable thing about me and keep referencing it as if culturally I was that thing. But at the end of the day, Max, like you and I are about the same amount of Armenian culturally, except I might know a little bit more about the Armenian genocide and I might have a slightly higher predilection for hummus. I'm not sure how much you like hummus, but I know I love it a lot. It's pretty good. That should be one thing we can all agree on. (laughs) But when it came to people talking about me in these circles on a day-to-day basis, they placed a really high premium on that identity and almost never, I think really never, ever mentioned my Irish half. But the fact of the matter is, is that I've been here for so long, I just identify purely as culturally American and so would my parents. And I began to realize that these folks were referencing my Armenian identity over and over again because they were looking at the world through an oppressed oppressor framework. And they saw Armenians as people of color who had historically been oppressed. And the reason they hadn't been mentioning my Irish identity is because they saw those people, regardless of the fact that they had been colonized by Britain for hundreds of years. That's a fascinating story as well. Yeah. They were looking at the world through an oppressor-oppressed framework. And again, this all sounds mimetic at this point because it's been in the air for so long. But back in 2013, 2014, I had never heard about a worldview that looked like this. And again, I'm trying to steel man this. There are instances throughout American society and society at large in which, of course, there have been oppressors and oppressed. But talking about people on an individual basis in a, hey, I'm talking to you, I'm looking at you right now, you are a human being. Let me talk about your identity and you as a human being within these frameworks, even though you work at a coffee shop or you work on a film set, it's really toxic. And it got me to a really bad place really quickly to the point where within a year or two, I was medicated, taking cognitive behavioral therapy, having suicidal ideation. And so this was a topic that became interesting to me for a very long time. And The two reasons that I started the podcast initially, Max, is one, the pandemic gave me a lot of free time. And two, in some ways, it was an act of survival. I was trying to make sense and make value out of the years that I thought I had lost of my life to depression and anxiety that had resulted from being exposed to these ideas in a really unhealthy way. And I wanted to see if I could take those experiences, talk about these issues with people who thought more holistically about them, and hopefully gain some value out of what I thought had been lost years of my life. How do you think, uh, this is this is a really heavy story. I know I, a lot of people have, have gone through some really, um, really tough issues in their lives. I know I have, but like where- Sorry to hit you with that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I, it's fascinating. And I'm trying to figure out how to, uh, where to get more information without trying to go, w- which place we should go. Because I feel like, let me, let me make this comment. Whenever you dive into an ideology or a new way of thinking about something, there's often like a fascination with it. I've never heard these ideas before. I want to hear more. But then oftentimes there are people who either take it too far, although I don't know if take it too far is like the right is the right analogy. It's it's often like they try to bend reality towards their framework when reality doesn't want to bend. Maybe that's that's the idea. And so my question is, okay, do we just become cynics and ignore everything? Or do we want to try to salvage what is right about what people are saying. I mean, look, I hang out with a lot of libertarians. You could make another case for that. Like there's like, you know, kind of the Ayn Rand objectivism. There's sort of, there's certain like a a kind of a far right cult there that kind of goes off the deep end sometimes. And it's how do you salvage what's, do you struggle with this? Like how to salvage what's good with, because you're fascinated by a topic for a reason usually. Yes. And I've been interested about ideas around identity and narratives since I was a kid. The whole idea of like, Who am I and how did I become who I am? One of the reasons why I ultimately lost my faith in my late teens, early 20s is because I was trying to combine these two ideas about myself of I'm a critical thinker, 
And I like to think things through and hold the stances that I hold after a lot of deep thought about it with, and this is no offense meant to anyone who is religious. And I have a great deal of respect for people who practice religions. And if that helps them give meaning to their lives, I'm all for it. But for me, I couldn't square the circle of, I need to be able to know what I know for certain if I'm going to state that I believe it. And there's a lot of questions that I have around religion that I'm not able to get answers for. And growing up, I had friends who were Jewish or Muslim or atheist, and I couldn't square the circle around the fact that these friends that I loved just because of a trick of fate were not destined to go to the same place that I would after death. And that started the conversation in my mind of, okay, then who am I and what do I believe? When my mind encounters something like that, it goes down that rabbit hole as a matter of course. And so for me, this was kind of a perfect storm where I have a kind of obsessive thinking tendency, which helps in creativity a lot. Probably it applies to your industry as well. I think people who can obsess over one thing for a very long period of time are the kinds of people who eventually make breakthroughs. And the same thing goes with storytelling. If you have someone who can look at a cup from a thousand different ways and just obsess over that cup, they could probably make a good story about that cup or probably make a better cup. I'm picturing, I don't know what movie this is. I feel like there's tons of movies where you have someone obsessing over a problem that eventually in the end of the movie, they they come up with some positive outcome. But I feel like there's always a scene midway through the problem where they get frustrated and give up and just burn it all or something, you know? But then a person who's obsessed with that little thing will always come back to it. Yes. And it's the obsession that leads to breakthroughs, right? And the same thing holds true of comedy. Jerry Seinfeld obsesses over his jokes. I mean, he spends hours, days, weeks, months writing a joke that might be two minutes long and ultimately be an observation that we all connect with because we've all experienced it. But none of us would be able to write that joke because we weren't obsessing over how big is a bar of soap for three weeks, right? Right. But obsessing over that topic makes you have new insights. You have to have a mind that is willing to obsess. It's, it's, it can't be forced. Exactly. But the downside to that with, I think, someone with my kind of brain is that if you start obsessing over the wrong things or you try to make sense out of something that if you think about it for too long, doesn't really make sense, it can go to really dark places. But to your point about how do we keep ourselves from throwing in the towel, I think you just have to have a healthy, more holistic view of the world. And so whether it's a libertarian ideology or a tool like critical race theory, you can see these as tools, right? And again, no offense meant to libertarians. I went through a big libertarian phase and I still have libertarian beliefs. But my friend Jay Shapiro, who's a filmmaker and philosopher and has been on the show many times, he said, there are no libertarians in a pandemic. At some point, there are some instances that require group action that is not possible on your own. And in the same way, critical race theory turned me on to court cases, right? Like back in the 1920s where there would be a lot of newly arrived immigrants or newly minted American citizens who literally took their cases all the way to the Supreme Court to get the idea and topic of whiteness adjudicated. There are a couple of cases that involve Armenians, where in the early 1920s, they had to go to the Supreme Court to see whether or not legally they were white, because if they were white, then they could be a citizen of the United States. And if they weren't, they weren't. And there were ethnographers and there were social scientists and biologists who attended these Supreme Court hearings, all the testimony of which is just available to read online. And it is wild. So the idea that whiteness, quote unquote, and how we define white had a huge impact on American society, often at the and almost exclusively at the expense of people of color. It's a very real thing. And you can't really understand American society without understanding the legalistic frameworks that influenced and informed how we think about each other in regards to race. That's 100 percent accurate. But if you look at the entire world through that lens, you start getting to a place where, and these are conversations I literally heard, where I heard a friend who was not white, 
And she would say, a white person cut in front of me at a restaurant today that she was waiting for a table. I know they did it because I'm not white. And I would say, well, how do you know? What if they were just a jerk? I've had people cut in front of me. And instantly they cut the conversation off, right? Now, this person didn't say anything to my friend, didn't say a single word, didn't even look at them, right? They just cut in front. There are rude people in the world. Now, again, that's not to take away from the fact that racism does occur, and we can't rule out that it wasn't race-based, right? But if it's the only lens you look through life, you look at every problem, solving it with a libertarian lens, not to say that libertarianism isn't useful at points, not to say that looking for racism isn't useful at points, but if it's the only lens through which you look at life, you will find it everywhere, even when it doesn't exist. And in my opinion, that can take you mentally to a lot of really dangerous and dark places. I agree with that. I think there's a lot to that. There's a lot to, of course, like, you know, we could talk pandemic policy type things, which I don't think is is useful getting into right now, because I think there's, I've covered that so much here. Uh, But what I do want to get into is you mentioned at the beginning when you're growing up that you really wanted to, it, it sounded like Maybe I'm I'm paraphrasing here too much, but it sounded like you wanted to form your beliefs through first principles or through rationalism. Yes. Do you think that there's like a a, a limit to that as well? And uh, just to give you kind of a background on on sort of my evolution with this show, I, I started the show talking a lot about Bayesian inference, which is I think the um, the mathematical codification of the scientific method. I'm a huge believer in the scientific method, but I found the limits of that. I've I've explored the ideas of the rationalists and the effective altruists. And I just think that there is at some point even a limit to that. Oh, yes, absolutely. You can't solve every problem through rationalism when you recognize that the world in many ways is inherently irrational. As much as I want to believe that every decision that I make is rational, I mean, that's obviously not true. I make impulsive decisions all the time that are based on emotion or a lack of forethought. Rationally, I probably shouldn't have had three of the pumpkin chocolate chip cookies that my mom sent my wife and I last night. And yet I did because they're really delicious and she makes them once a year. Is that the most rational decision for me to make? No, but I was feeling impulsive. I was exhausted from work and I wanted to have three cookies. And things like this happen in life all the time. So I think in many ways, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. You have to take a holistic approach to solving problems. And if you try and look at everything through a rationalist lens, I think that leads to looking at humanity in a kind of a cold way. And again, like I would love if every decision we could make in society was based on rationality. I think we'd probably be in a much healthier place, but you can't implement rationalism without totalitarianism. Yeah, that's that's actually, I'm no expert, but I feel like that's a common theme throughout history where some people are overzealous in terms of um, seeing rationalism. The first that comes to mind is, is some aspects of the French Revolution uh, another one that comes to mind is there was like a um, one of the Islamic dynasties. I, I, I think it might have been in the Abbasid or, or I, I don't know which one. But the guy who was killing people in the court, the, the king, was actually the rationalist king trying to get rid of the religious thinkers. So I'm not an expert in these in these topics, but but I've, I've sort of heard inklings of that. Yeah. And the most recent guest I had on the podcast, his episode just came out today is Greg Lukianoff. He's the president and CEO for the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. And one of the reasons why I love having him on and talking about the power and importance of freedom of speech, which is a uniquely American thing. I don't think there are any other countries on earth that have the protections around speech that America has. And one of the reasons why that's so important is because if you try and implement rationalism through dictatorial means, you're not really convincing anyone. You're just terrifying them into obeying you. 
But ideally, in the marketplace of ideas, and of course, this isn't always going to happen because sometimes bad ideas went out because charlatans have silver tongues and people can convince you of all sorts of things. But at least with something like freedom of speech, if your idea is really good and you are good at conveying that idea, you might just be able to convince enough people who are going to allow you to implement your idea in a way that does not require totalitarianism, does not require you making people bend the knee through force. But hopefully they can come around to your idea because you've convinced them in the public square. Yeah, I'm such a strong supporter of free speech, and I have been even before the current like implications of that. Uh, but again, I don't want to kid myself on the implications that go along with it. it can, free speech can be very messy. And you mentioned the silver-tongued charlatan. Those can often win out in the short term. But I think free speech often gives us way better benefits in the long term. Yes, there are downsides, of course, to letting anyone say anything. But I think similar to democracy... I'm paraphrasing here, but it's the best idea out of all the possible different bad options. There are going to be downsides to freedom of speech. I'm not a fan of hate speech or racial slurs or false information. I don't like any of those things. But trying to regulate all of that would cause worse outcomes than just allowing people to say obnoxious, abhorrent, incorrect things in the same way that trying to get everyone to be rationalist. If you try to get everyone to believe and think the quote unquote correct right things, you would create hell very quickly. Yeah. I think for me, one of the jarring realizations is that oftentimes it's not just like, okay, we're we're taking out hate speech, we're taking out misinformation. It, it seems like almost every time, maybe, every time someone or an organization tries to do that, it goes hand in hand with censoring true things uh, and censoring things that are maybe inconvenient to the people who are running the show there. Yes. And it's so easy to create environments where people all of a sudden become fans of regulating quote-unquote misinformation. It was only a few years ago, I'm, I can't remember which poll I read, but I, it was in preparation for my conversation with Greg, where both Democrats and Republicans were against regulating information on the internet. This was back in like 2020, 2019, where there were not majorities of either party who were in favor of regulating these things. But now in 2023, almost three out of four Democrats want the government to regulate mis- and disinformation, false information online. How did we get here? You can be well-intentioned in the path towards hell. Again, I don't like the fact that there's lies on the internet or false information or misinformation from people who are poorly informed but don't realize they're spreading it. But again, if you create an environment in which people feel like the government getting involved is the only way that you can stop this atrocious thing, it leads to outcomes like this. And again, I think if you sat every one of these individual people down, or at least most of them, and led them through from a first principles perspective what the eventual outcome of regulating speech and misinformation online would be, you'd probably get a lot of these people to change. But I think when you ask someone that question and they think, oh man, what about the people lying about COVID? Or what about the people lying about our president? Or what about the people, they're concerned. They don't want their fellow citizens to be misinformed. And so they think if the government can get involved and regulate these things, it'll lead to a better outcome for all of us. But the same reason I have the problem with the death penalty not just because I don't think that the government should have the power to kill anybody, but also you can never with 100% certainty guarantee that every person you're killing is actually guilty of what you've accused them of. Similarly, you can't guarantee that everything that you suppress online is actually false. Perfect example. In 2020 and 2021, Facebook would censor any posts that said the COVID leak from a lab. Intentionally or unintentionally, I had Dr. Alina Chan on. She's a researcher at MIT and she was investigating the origins of covid basically since the outbreak first began, and she was pilloried for it. Her name was dragged through the mud because how dare you not believe what everyone else believes, which is that it came from a wet market. But yet, 
2021 comes around and all of a sudden Alina is looking more and more correct. And all of a sudden Facebook reverses its policy and no longer is banning any information relevant to a lab leak theory. Okay. Well, if you have the government regulating misinformation and what our definition of it is and what categorizes it is always changing, then all you're doing is just suppressing speech that oftentimes happens to be true. It's just not considered true yet. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think my realization is that this happens regularly. It's not just like, oh, every once in a while, something slips through the crack and we censor something we're not supposed to do. I think everyone has to decide for themselves if it... I feel like if someone has it in their minds, like, oh, it's it's yes, of course, there are going to be mistakes, but it's not going to be very often, then they might still support the suppression of information regime. And I'm trying to, I don't have a good story for why it always goes haywire, but it seems to. Anytime a policy comes along that is going to give the government a lot of power, whether that's the Patriot Act or the ability to suppress misinformation, quote unquote, online. Okay, what if my least favorite politician or like the worst person in America had this power? Would I want to give them this power? And when it comes to something like, how do we define misinformation? Or a good example would be what I just talked about with Greg. There was a 1942 Supreme Court case, Shaplinsky v. New Hampshire. The Supreme Court ruled with New Hampshire that the defendant, Shaplinsky's speech rights were not trampled because basically what he was saying were quote unquote fighting words. He called the local law person a fascist and the mayor a raconteur or something, right? Not kind things to say. But if we looked at that from a lens of 2023, of course, we should be allowed to do that. I see it every day. (laughs) Right. I know. Yeah. I mean, look, it allows us to say whatever we want about Joe Biden or Donald Trump or burn them in effigy if we want to on the streets of the city. It doesn't really matter, right? We take these things for granted. For a very long time, Shaplinsky was the law of the land which said that they were fighting words because they could incite violence in the person you're talking to. So if you call someone a fascist or if you call someone a bad name like that, you are creating an environment in which violence may happen because you're basically getting their blood up, right? Now we have, I think, a much stricter standard, which is imminent lawless action, the imminent threat of violence, as if I were to go outside of your house, Max, and say, I think we should all pull Max out of his house and beat him up. That's illegal. But if I were to just say at a bar or something, I really wish something bad happens to Max or man, if I had Max in a room with me, I would just give him a what for, right? That's perfectly protected in the same way that you can call like a police, you can call him a pig or a fascist or whatever you want, or you can give him a compliment, whatever you feel like. The thing with something like the Shaplinsky ruling and why it's so dangerous to give these powers to mortal beings is that they are eventually going to abuse them. If you give someone enough power to define what is or is not misinformation, then they can just decide reality themselves. And I think that's really dangerous. Yeah. I I was thinking about how you like to talk about identity and diagnose social problems. And one of the issues with lots of free speech is that competing tribes, they could be ideological tribes, they could be ethnic tribes, mostly political tribes I'm thinking about. They're very good at building narratives of selective facts. And I don't know if we're at a time where people are particularly good at that or, or if that's always been the case. It seems like this is something we need to live with. Are are you of the opinion that we need to, like, how do we break this or maybe not break this, but try, try to have different groups talk to each other in a more productive way? It's something that I think about a lot. And the pessimist in me, Max, says that it's not solvable, but I keep bringing on guests to try and figure out how to solve it. Whether it's Sean Kamak, who started the Narratives Project. I think the first story he dissected was the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting where he literally looked at the narrative from the left and the narrative from the right minute by minute, 
story by story on both sides and was like, okay, this side got this right. This side got this right. This is true. That is true. This is true. Just ping pongs back and forth between both narratives and finds what the actual truth of a story is and then explains why this side is exaggerating these things and why this side is exaggerating these things. He was my sixth guest on the show. I've also had Alexandra Hudson on who talks about how we should be more civil with each other and how civility doesn't run counter to oftentimes needed radical social change or Monica Guzman, again, from Braver Angels, who has a real penchant for curiosity and is also trying to figure out how we bridge our divides. Her story is really interesting. She is Mexican-American. Her parents immigrated from Mexico. And in 2016, after the presidential election, she finds out she voted for Hillary and her parents voted for Trump. And she comes to this realization of like, oh my God, my parents must believe in things that I don't. And also, we're both ethnically Mexican. How could they reach this conclusion? And she reached this point where she was like, well, I can either totally write my parents off and say that they're a lost cause, or I can get curious and try and figure out why they think the way they think, and maybe we can reach some common ground, right? So I've had a lot of folks like this on, and I think that there is a lot of value in talking with one another, which is why I support Braver Angels' work. It's a nonprofit that brings the reds and the blues, as they say, into rooms with one another to try and talk about their differences in more productive ways. My concern, though, is that with social media and the internet acting as like an atomization machine, pushing us further and further apart from one another. Yeah. I, I'll post something. There's like, a, you get like rude comments that come out of nowhere, like for no reason. Yes. The internet makes it so like we're all in cars on a freeway. Mm. There's actually studies that show this. So when someone's driving a car, they get into a mental state where their body in their mind kind of merges with the car. So when someone cuts off your car, you feel like someone is cutting you as a human being off, even though that person probably can't even see you through the windshield. Combining that with the fact that we're not actually looking at the other person in the car when we curse them and flip them off, we kind of dehumanize them. If someone cut you off on the sidewalk, you might be like, hey, man, what's going on? But I doubt you'd be like, F you, you mother effer. I have gotten that once or twice uh, in the city. <laughs> Although surprisingly, I don't know, I lived in New York for, for 14 years. I probably got that four or five times. That's not that bad. <laughs> That's almost a perfect record for New York. A lot of crazy people shouting, but you know, in terms of like the whole cutoff <laughs> thing, you know. Yes. But I think the internet puts us all in cars in that you can't see the person you're talking to and you get to say this thing to them that gives you that dopamine rush of like, yeah, I put him in his place, but you don't get to see their facial expression as a result of what you said. So I get to call you all the worst names in the world, but I don't get any immediate feedback that I would get if I were looking at you in the eye. If I looked at you in the eye and said something really mean to you and I got to see how much it hurt you, honestly, unless I'm a sociopath, it's going to start making me regret what I said. But if I get to do that first half without getting any of the repercussions of the second half, that's where it leads. Again, I try and have people on over and over again to try and figure out how to solve this. But the internet plus social media plus the rapidly approaching future with AGI, which is just going to create it's going to be worse than Skynet. I actually don't even know how we're going to function as societies once that is in the hands of people. Do you think there could be, I don't know if there's a technological solution to this problem, but from what you're saying, putting all of us in cars, what you're saying almost suggests that there are certain technological fixes that we could make or perhaps features that we could make that we as in whoever's making these things that that could perhaps alleviate this problem. For example... I don't know. Is there a way to make it feel like more in a, a social media type situation? Let's say it's a metaverse type situation where perhaps when you start saying something, you do get that emotional feedback. 
So the obesity rates in America in 1980 were 13.4%. 13% or so of all Americans were considered obese. And I think now that number is 40%. So what happened in that intervening time between 1980 and 2020, let's say? It's 40-year period, goes from 13 to 40%. Human beings didn't genetically change. There's nothing about us that evolved in such a way in such a short period of time in two generations that caused us to all of a sudden just become fatter. Nor do I think really, if we studied it, did our ability to have self-control get worse. It's just that when every option of food that you have or nearly every option is stuffed with high fructose corn syrup or carbohydrates or every option for every meal that you have is twice the size of the meals that are served in Europe, if every single place that you go incentivizes you to eat more, eventually you become victim to the incentives. Mm. Without a lot of work. It's not impossible. Not everyone is obese. And this isn't putting blame on people who are. It's just saying that similarly with social media, one, for all their talk, social media companies are not incentivized to get people to interact less. And so people who have worked at Facebook, who either are still there or have since left, have come out sounding the alarm saying that we have crafted these algorithms so that we feed information to people, we feed posts to people that get the highest amount of engagement possible because more engagement equals more time on the site. And they found that the way to get people the most engaged and spend most time on the site is to make them mad. Because the more angry they are, the more time they'll spend on the site. So a pursuit of an economic result, how do we increase our profits from people being on the site longer, from looking at ads? How do we get their eyeballs on the site for a longer period of time? I don't think they did it with any kind of malicious intent. They just saw the data. They were like, all right, making people angry keeps them on the site for five more minutes than if we made them happy. Let's keep them on the site and make more money. And so if you're incentivizing people over and over again to get angry so they stay on your site, the second order effects of that is they're going to start hating their neighbors more. They're going to see their fellow citizens in the worst light possible. They're going to start drawing more lines along racial and ethnic divisions than before. It spills over into real life. Exactly. And I think that that's why the pandemic accelerated so much. Because if you're online and you're reading narratives about Republicans or Democrats, let's say you're a Democrat and you're reading these awful narratives. They just want kids in cages. They want fascism. They want every brown person to die. But every Monday through Friday, you go and you see your coworker, Tim, who's a pretty centrist Republican and just likes going to church, but tutors black kids after school. Every time you interact with him, you're going to get something that negatively correlates with the news that you're consuming online. So there's always going to be a tension between the oftentimes false or exaggerated narratives you're reading online and the actual human interactions you're having with Tim on a day-to-day -day basis. But if all of a sudden everyone is locked down and you're no longer making contact with people who think differently from you, all of a sudden it becomes way more easy to dehumanize them because they're not around. And I don't know how to solve that. I noticed this during the pandemic where at work, we used to have these company meetings and the company executives would get up on stage, talk to us, but we'd be right there. And if something's not making sense to us or if we're bored, they feel it immediately. And I noticed that when they went to uh, virtual company updates, it was essentially just like watching a TV show. And they, start, they started getting more and more out of touch with every iteration. And it was to the point where I wanted to like punch my computer monitor. <laughs> and then I realized it's my own computer monitor. So better not. But yeah. <laughs> I had the same exact experience watching stand up during the pandemic. Once the pandemic started, there were a couple of local comedy clubs like the Laugh Factory and the Comedy Store that tried to do comedy shows through Zoom or do it online. I watched one for like 10 minutes. I started cringing out of my skin because it was these really good, fairly well-known, oftentimes famous comedians who were trying to do stand up in this format. 
And to your point, Max, they had no audience feedback. So they had no idea if any of the jokes they were doing were actually landing. And if you don't get that immediate feedback from the person you're talking to, even just one-on-one, hey, is what I'm saying convincing you? Is what I'm saying offending you? If you don't have that feedback, (laughs) I think you're just kind of going to be adrift no matter how skilled of an orator you are. Yeah. No, I mean, that reminds me of a conversation I had with a a comedian around that time who, who didn't want to do it, only wanted to be in front of an audience. And I kind of understand that quite a bit. Um, but okay, we're getting to the point where it's yes, maybe there could be a technological solution if the uh, if if the world were only a bunch of engineers getting together saying, you know, what can we build that's best for society? But that's not necessarily how it works. Similar as in the food industry, but there has to be some kind of positive, hopeful. It doesn't have to be entirely hopeful, but there has to be some kind of actionable thing we can take away from this. So it's not just all kind of black pill type. Yeah, we're just getting worse. Like, so is there anything that you're excited about or anything that you think might save us? Or if not, maybe there's a personal salvation, maybe learning how an individual could learn how to navigate this world. I I, I don't know. How, How do you think about this? There's this saying online, touch grass, get offline, go outside, feel the grass between your feet. Go say hi to your neighbor. Go for a walk in the park. Pet your dog. Put your phone down. And I am guilty of being on my phone a lot. But I think that the internet, for all of its power, paints a really distorted version of society. You see all the worst things. You see all the worst things, but you also see things that aren't true. Kind of in the same way that when I was running in these circles around critical race theory about a decade ago, oftentimes I'd hear people talk about society in ways that just did not comport with We'd be like in a brewery that looked like a multiracial paradise where everyone's just getting along and people are having beer and laughing and playing cornhole. That was Brooklyn. Right. Just getting along. Right. Again, not to take away from the very real problems we got to solve. But if you just looked at this brewery, it doesn't look like anyone hates each other. And yet I'd be engrossed in these conversations where we're talking about how oppressive and awful everything is. And I feel like the Internet is a lot like this. So I would say I don't know how to solve the problem of the Internet, but in terms of like how we can make our own lives better. Focus on living the present, on surrounding yourself with people who try and think about things from a multitude of angles. The world is multifaceted. I think our brain should be as well. Seek out people who want to make our world a better place. I've said this to Monica the most recent time she came on. She's been on the podcast twice. And the second time she came on, I said at the end of the episode, I was like, one of the reasons, Monica, I love talking with you is that if I'm ever feeling pessimistic about the state of America, all I have to do is talk with you for an hour and I feel better. And what that says is that, and you learn this in cognitive behavioral therapy, the way that you, not just you, Max, you, me, anyone, the way that any one of us views society, views the world around us, views reality is just that. It's our viewpoint. It doesn't actually mean how reality is. So when I was struggling with depression years ago, I was convinced my friends hate me. And yet when I started doing therapy and the therapist started walking me through it and was like, okay, Michael, let's take that thought seriously. And we would take a sheet of paper and she'd have me make two columns. And let's write down every bit of evidence that proves that your friends hate you and every bit of evidence that proves that they don't. Now, would there be some things in the friends hate me column, even if they were a little exaggerated, that could make my case? Sure. Was the column that says my friends don't hate me way, way longer? Yes. And I think what social media and the internet does, and perhaps why I'm especially attuned to the poison, it encourages the same kinds of symptoms that I experienced when I needed cognitive behavioral therapy. Faulty thinking, us versus them, catastrophizing, black and white scenarios. If any of these things apply to you, you should probably go to therapy because your thinking is broken. And yet social media incentivizes us to think those ways all the time. It's programming us to be mentally unwell. Yes. 
That's alarming, but it's good to know that. No, it very much is. And again, not to black pill people with this. It's not a black pill because when you know if something is poisoning you, then you could do something about it. Yes, exactly. If you can hear someone like me who had to go to cognitive behavioral therapy because I was suffering from clinical depression as a result of looking at the world in really faulty ways that were not true. If you can hear someone like me say, hey, the internet is making millions of us think the exact same way. The solution, the solve, the cure, the medicine is just to spend less time online and spend more time getting data from the world around you. Because if you're convinced that Republicans are scumbags or Democrats are evil, and then you realize that barista you've been talking to every day who's so nice to you all the time, and actually you've got to learn a lot about her and her family as a Democrat, or that the plumber who visits twice a year and is always really nice and brought cookies during Christmas is a Republican, then you begin to realize, okay, which piece of data is more true? The day-to-day human interactions I'm having with real human beings or the narratives I'm hearing about these mythical Republicans, mythical Democrats who I've never met, but I always hear so bad. To go back to what I said earlier, touch grass, focus on real life human interactions, real experiences, and just realize that the internet's making you sick. Michael, that was a a really good point to end on and uh, a really great discussion. There's so much more that we can get into with all this stuff, which I'm sure you do on the podcast many, many hours, but uh, I really appreciate this conversation today. Uh, Is there anything else that you'd like to add that you didn't get to add? And where can people find your stuff online? I think the one thing I would add is that you run a great show yourself. Local Maximum is fantastic. Then one of the reasons why I have such admiration for your work, Max, is because I think you embody a lot of the great qualities that I both aspire to have within myself and that I look for in all of my guests, which is like empathy, curiosity, and trying to think about the world in constantly new and refreshing ways. And as far as where people can find the podcast, you can just go to wherewegonext.com or just go to your favorite podcast player and look for Where We Go Next. And I think somewhere in there, whether it's free speech advocates or technologists or authors, journalists, hopefully you'll find at least one episode in there that you'll enjoy, but hopefully a few more. All right. So I encourage everyone to visit that wherewegonext.com. Thank you so much for the compliments. I feel like that's something to aspire to (laughs) uh, uh, in the future. Uh, I I appreciate it. Michael Callahan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. All right. Fantastic. Next time, we're going to talk to the founder of Linear B, which is a software company named for an ancient script. Find out why next week. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. The Local Maximum is now hosted on Substack. To support the show, join our online community on localmaximum.substack.com. Find show notes and additional materials at our website, localmaxradio.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. Remember to subscribe on your podcast app. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Can you feel the power?